Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we give you thanks for this day, for the blessings of this life, for the beauty of the earth and the glory of the skies, and especially for the glory of your word. Open our hearts to receive that word, and now let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in the church year, we're now in this long season after Pentecost, the green season, we call it, this uh, half of the church year that is the non-festival uh, part where we hear much about uh, the life and ministry of Jesus. And during this uh, season, our gospel lesson each Sunday will, for the most part, come from the gospel of St. Mark. Mark's way of telling the story of Jesus is particularly exciting and vibrant. His is the shortest of the Gospels, and perhaps because of that, he has his narrative move along with incredible energy. Jesus begins his ministry preaching the Gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. And then in quick, broad strokes, Mark sketches out the next days and weeks of Jesus' ministry. First, he calls his disciples. Then he begins his march through the countryside of Galilee. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He teaches. He preaches. He's raising such a stir that the scribes and Pharisees begin to take note. He seems to provoke them deliberately by doing things that are against Jewish law, Perhaps you remember from last week's gospel, he heals on the Sabbath, and this causes quite a stir. And all the while, the crowds surrounding him become greater and greater, with people pressing in on him, trying to see and to hear and perhaps to touch this strange young teacher. Earlier in this chapter 3, Jesus has his disciples get into a boat so that they can escape the crowds. And they go away to the hills for a time. And then in this morning's reading, Jesus has just come back, come home to, to Nazareth. But scarcely has he arrived when the crowds begin to gather again. Mark says that Jesus' family tries to restrain him, for people are saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes go one step further. They say he's possessed by a demon. In other words, quite a number of people think that Jesus is just stark raving mad. Now, why would that be? Well, it's not too hard to figure out. Jesus had been trained to be a carpenter. He'd been raised by a good, humble, hard-working couple who expected him to stay there in Nazareth and to work in the family business and to marry and raise a family like any good Jewish boy. They expected him to do all the things that make for a stable life, a secure life, and, and here he's gone off on this wild mission, talking nonsense, violating the laws and norms of his society. And so they are convinced that he's got a screw loose. Now this is a passage that we often forget when we think about Jesus. If we were asked, how did people respond to Jesus in the first century, many of us would say, well, the crowds loved him, the scribes and Pharisees hated him. But here's a different view, a more nuanced view. There were some, even among those closest to him, his own family, some who thought 
that he was crazy. And in a sense, of course, I suppose they were correct. I mean, Jesus had chosen a way that was anything but normal or practical. He'd chosen a way that he himself knew would lead to an unpleasant end, the way of the cross, he would call it. To the mind of many, it was a ridiculous way, a foolish way. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, people had much the same attitude toward his followers. The gospel, Paul tells us, is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. In the early days of the church, the Romans found Christianity absolutely puzzling. They often referred to it as this new superstition. And Christians not only believed this superstition, but they behaved in ways that simply could not be tolerated. They refused to sacrifice to the emperor. They refused to serve in Caesar's army. Eventually, of course, the gospel won over the Roman Empire and Christianity became the official religion of much of the West. But you know, today, in many respects, we're living in a time when things have come full circle. Because today, people often think that Christians are crazy. Have you ever had that feeling of, of people, uh, maybe people that you know, neighbors or friends who think that you're going to church is just odd? Well, do you remember the story in John's Gospel about the man born blind? Jesus heals him and restores his sight, and, and then his troubles begin. The Pharisees haul him in for questioning. They demand that he explain how this common sinful man like Jesus could have restored his sight. And the man debates with them for a while, and, and then he gives up. He just says, well, you know what? Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. And that's the answer of faith. The answer that says, I believe, not because I've got it all figured out, not because it makes rational sense to me, not because I can explain it in intellectual terms, but simply because I have experienced the grace and the love of God. And what other answer can there be? Think of the Apostle Paul, one of the most brilliant, eloquent men of his day, a man trained as a rabbi, a man who could argue rationally and convincingly with the best of them. That's what rabbis did. He was so personally certain that Jesus was a fraud, that he was dangerous, that Christianity was subversive, that he was the leader of those who persecuted and even killed Christians until one day on the road to Damascus, he had an experience of Jesus Christ. And suddenly he believed, not because he figured it out, not because he solved all the problems in his mind, but because he had encountered Christ. And so it is with us. We believe things that we cannot prove because we have experienced the love and grace of God. To those who have not had that experience, it may seem crazy. It may seem irrational. It may seem like superstition. 
But we believe nonetheless, because we have understood, not with our minds, but with our hearts. There are many today who think that we Christians are crazy because of how we worship. Going back again to the early church, you know what one of the most frequent charges was that was made against Christians was that they were cannibals. Now, why would pagans think that? Exactly, because Christians spoke about eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ. And to the Greek mind, to the Roman mind, the Jewish mind, that was simply madness. It made no sense. Now, one of the things I've come to love about Emmanuel is the stained glass windows. At first, I thought they were kind of uninteresting, at least compared to the windows of great majestic cathedrals. They've kind of grown on me over the years, and now when I look at them at different times of the day, different times of the year, I'm always seeing different things in the colors and the patterns. The 20th century English scholar Evelyn Underhill used stained glass windows as a wonderful analogy for Christian worship. When viewed from the outside, she said, they are dark, unattractive, and uninteresting. But when you go inside the church, the light of the sun brings them alive, and they take on a beauty and a significance that you could never discern from the outside. And that's how it is with our worship. Outsiders may not understand it. It may seem boring, uninspiring, even dark. But when you come inside, you see the beauty because you see the light of Christ illumining these forms and bringing them to life. And those on the outside may think that we're crazy, but we see a beauty that they do not yet see. There are many who think we Christians are crazy because of how we live. And what could be crazier than loving one's enemies, forgiving those who offend us? What could be more absurd than breaking out of our society's constant emphasis on pleasure and self-satisfaction and living instead for others? Many years ago, I was sitting with a group of Christians, and somehow the talk turned to taxes. Nearly every person in this group shared that they had experienced an IRS audit. And it was always for the same reason. What do you think it was? Charitable contributions, exactly. Their faith led them to give to their church and to other charities as well, to give at a level that the IRS found unfathomable. To the world, you see, such generous giving seems crazy. Think about some of the saints in the church's history, not the distant past, but just in the last 75 years or so. Do you remember the story of Corey Ten Boom? Is that a familiar name? To I see a few nods, yes. Corrie ten Boom was a, a Dutch a Christian laywoman whose devoutly Christian family was arrested and sent to a Nazi concentration camp because they sheltered Jews. A crazy thing to do. Who would ever risk their family, their safety, even their own life 
to help strangers. Who would do that? Think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the young German theologian who had opposed Hitler, was studying in the United States when war broke out in Europe. His American friends pleaded with him to stay in the United States where it was safe. He insisted on going home, knowing that he would likely be arrested and perhaps even executed. It was crazy. It was reckless. But he was convinced that God had called him to be a witness to Christ in the darkness of Nazi Germany. It would indeed cost him his life. Think about someone like Mother Teresa, St. Teresa. Now I guess she is. Why should one leave a comfortable existence in Europe to spend one's life in the slums of Calcutta, ministering to people who aren't even Christians, people who are so poor and so destitute and so sick that even your feeding and caring for them is not going to save them. They're too far gone. Why not, with her gifts, find some more practical form of ministry, something more useful in the eyes of the world? It's simply crazy to give yourself up for a hopeless cause. And yet, that's what Christians do. The world values security and comfort and reasonableness, same values held by Jesus' family and friends, but those are precisely the values set on their head by the one who came preaching the good news of God, the one who came to serve the outcasts and the sinners and the harlots, the the one who told his listeners that they must take up their cross if they would follow him. And they thought he was crazy. And so do many people today. But what about you? Are you really crazy enough to follow Christ? Amen, Ray. Are you crazy enough to give up what the world thinks is important? Are you crazy enough to stand for what is right in a world that seems hell-bent on worshiping the idols of power and celebrity and lust and greed? Are you crazy enough to love your enemies, to speak for those who have no voice, to serve those whom the world rejects? Are you crazy enough to give and give and give again what God first gave to you, to spend yourself and not count the cost? Are you crazy enough to take up your cross and follow him? If you are, then it is you that Jesus was talking about when he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.